Well, amen. Thank you for AJ putting that video together. Thank you for everyone participating in Serve Jersey. A uh, special shout out to Christy Cataret, who really did way more work than anyone would ever realize to get all the projects set up, all the registrations, and getting everything smoothly run. It was a great day last Saturday. Um, but with that, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles. And uh, do not go to the book of Mark. <laughs> we, we are moving on. Go to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we invite you to use a blue pewback Bible. You'll find Jonah 1. It's only on two pages of that blue pew Bible, and it's on page 774. And uh, so this morning we are beginning a new series. We're going to take six weeks to go through this little prophetic book, and, and it's a very familiar, very memorable story of this rebellious prophet and a relentless God. And I say it's familiar because if you were to kind of think back, what are just Bible stories you remember from as a kid? If we were to get all the kids back upstairs and say, just name a few stories you know in the Bible, there is a great chance that Jonah is going to be in your top three. Uh, because you, you, you learned it as a kid. It's a fun story. It's a short story. And, um, and you know there's a whale involved and something gets a little crazy and he survives. And so Part of the reason why I uh, really felt God just putting it on my heart to go through this book is I want to, in a sense, rescue it from the realm of just children's stories. Because if we were honest and we called the adults up and we said, tell me about Jonah, most of us are probably going to go, there's a whale and something happens and it's swallowed and he survives. And so uh, to say it maybe another way, it, it's possible to know the story of Jonah but know very little about the book of Jonah. And I think what we will find over the next six weeks is that this book remains stunningly relevant, almost surprisingly so, in 2019. Um, so if you are in here and you're like, actually, I don't know much about Jonah, um, it is a book in the Old Testament, uh, meaning that it was written before the birth and life of Jesus Christ. And actually, Jonah was written about 750 years before Jesus was born, and it's located in a section of the Bible known as the prophetic books. Um, there are 17 total prophetic books in the Old Testament. There are five what we call major prophets and 12 minor prophets. And that distinction, if you've heard it before, is not based on importance. Like you got the five major ones, it was really important, and you got 12 kind of unimportant ones. Um, they say that major, minor, simply based on length. Minor prophets are minor because they're short. And in the Hebrew scrolls, the 12 minor prophets were all bound together. And so um, each of the synagogues had their scrolls, and each major prophet had its own scroll, right? Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, etc. And then the 12 minor prophets were always grouped together. Um, so they are kind of loosely viewed like 12 chapters of one book. And the era of the prophets was over a period of a few hundred years during a time in Israel's history where God was raising up men to stand in between. To stand in between a good God and a rebellious nation. And each prophet had a distinct calling based upon where they were in Israel's history. Who were they declaring God's word to? Um, so their callings were always distinct, but the message was always consistent throughout the prophets. And isn't that been true for now 2,000 years? I mean, even longer than that, that the messengers always change, but the message always stays the same. 
And the prophets, kind of what was their message? You can basically boil down to kind of four movements, four purposes that all the prophets had. We'll have it, uh, just list them very quickly onto uh, the screen. Um, First was to expose sin and and call people to repentance, one of the purposes of the prophets. Um, Second, to increase a standard of moral living. It was kind of moral decay in these nations that they're going to, and so part of their calling to is to expose that and wanting to increase this standard of moral living. Um, Third kind of movement in the prophets is to warn of judgment. And then fourth, to promise of a Messiah, to cast this vision of restoration that God was going to do. And in that way, the prophetic books are oftentimes kind of overlooked, kind of confusing for a lot of people, but they have some of the richest content in our Bibles. And so with that said, Jonah will reflect these themes, as we'll see, Um, but we will quickly notice right when we begin that Jonah is probably the most unique of the prophetic books for several reasons, but um, one of which being that it really is just a story. It's a short story. And for now, I'll say this, um, Jonah is like brilliantly written from a literary standpoint. And so you might hear that and go, that doesn't get me going at all. I don't really care. And I, I wouldn't say I'm like a real linguist or anything that has to do with literary structure, but it is a brilliant little read. And I say little because if you were to read straight through, it would probably take you 10 minutes. If you're reading slow, take you 10 minutes to go through Jonah. And let me just show you kind of how Jonah very... Um, kind of structures this, because it starts with God telling Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil. That's how it begins. And then look, if you have a Blue Pew Bible, go to the next page. Look at how it ends. Scroll on your phone to the end of chapter 4. It ends with a question. God now asking Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? What in the world happens in the span of a few short chapters where God goes from judgment to mercy? Welcome to Jonah. It's going to be great. So let's get going. This morning, we're just going to read the first three verses of the book. Follow along with me as I read. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. We are just looking at the first three verses because it will kind of give us an opportunity to get our bearings on the book of Jonah and then kind of set the stage for what's going to come. Um, And so I I want to quickly share one of the first things that hit me about this book is actually in relation to the Gospel of Mark, which if you're new, we just spent nearly a year and a half going through the Gospel of Mark. And we wrapped it up two weeks ago on Easter. Do you remember how it ended Mark ended with the word of the Lord coming to the women at the empty tomb and saying, go and tell. And the women fled in fear. The end. 
Now you finish that, and I flip to Jonah, and we go, okay, now we're switching to Jonah, and we start Jonah. And how does Jonah start? The word of the Lord coming to a man and saying, go and tell. And Jonah flees in fear. Same exact thing. Different situations, hundreds of years in between, same result. It is this crossroads of faith and fear. It's all throughout the Old Testament. It's all throughout the New Testament. My life and yours is lived out at the crossroads of faith and fear every single day. And so here's kind of the main point of this series of Jonah up front, that our God is a God of relentless grace who pursues his people and equips them to choose faith over fear. We need the message of Jonah in 2019, don't we? All right, so let's set the stage. Kind of four things we're going to just point out from these first few verses, just kind of get our bearings on the book of Jonah. And number one is a seasoned prophet. We have a seasoned prophet. So the book of Jonah starts the way that pretty much all the prophetic books do, and it is that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And the reason why they start that way is to show us that the central, most important aspect of the prophets in general, of Jonah in particular, is the word of the Lord. In fact, the most stunning truth behind Hall of History is that the infinite God of the universe, the creator of all things, has revealed himself to us, how? By his word. And so it begins like all the others, but we quickly find that Jonah is unique and that he's the only prophet in the Bible that was sent to give God's word to people outside the nation of Israel. So the other prophets were sent to speak to Israel or to the southern tribe of Judah, God's chosen people. But Jonah is called to actually go outside the borders, go to a pagan people, to the great city of Nineveh, which we'll talk more about in a few minutes. But if you were paying attention, if you were just reading the Bible cover to cover, you would find that this is not the first time you come across Jonah. He is in the Bible story before he comes out as a prophet. We were briefly introduced to him in the book of 2 Kings. It'd be understandable if you overlooked it. It's only two verses, but he's there. I want to quickly read them. Follow along on the screen. 2 Kings 14, verses 23 to 25. It says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebanon as far as the Sea of Arabah, bear with me, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke, watch, by his servant Jonah, the son of Amidai, the prophet who is from Gath Hefer. Jonah, by the time God called him, was already an experienced, seasoned prophet. He was, had already spoken the word of the Lord to Jeroboam Jr., the king of Israel. And at this point in the kind of Old Testament timeline, uh, the nation of Israel had split into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom, which had 10 of the 12 original tribes. They retained the name Israel. 
And then there was a southern kingdom, which was the southern two tribes that went by the name Judah. And so Jonah was called by God to prophesy to the king of the northern kingdom who was wicked in the sight of the Lord, as all the kings of Israel were by FYI, the northern kingdom. And during this time, Jeroboam had actually expanded Israel's borders beyond where even David and Solomon had expanded to them. So this king was spiritually destitute but militarily successful. And the reason why this is important to point out is that by the time God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, he had already been God's mouthpiece before. He's kind of well-known. He's not a new believer or an unbeliever. He's not immature or raw. The guy's got a track record and a pretty good one. And I think a really interesting detail to note as we go through this book is that while the, um, the book of Jonah, I think, will apply and relate to wherever you are in your relationship with Christ and wherever you are on the journey, it should be especially meaningful to those in the church who would consider themselves mature. Who, those who've maybe been saved for a long time, those of you with a track record, you can look back on your life and say, God has used me powerfully in churches for a long time. And you're not immature and you're not raw. And I think oftentimes we think Jonah is just kind of this raw new guy on the block that God's trying to use, but he's not. He's experienced. He's not the new kid on the block. So keep that in the back of your mind as we walk through this story. Um, so Jeroboam the second reigned from 782 to 753 B.C., which means this cult in Nineveh came sometime after that, sometime in the middle of the 8th century when Jonah was called upon once again. So there we have seasoned prophet number two. A pretty clear command. And actually pretty simple. Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This is unique in that Nineveh is, again, not a city within Israel's borders, but the message is consistent because, right, the word never changes. God wants a prophet to call out sin, to increase the standard of moral living, to warn people about judgment with the hope and desire that they would repent and receive God's mercy. Anytime you see a warning in the Bible, it's never meant to reveal this kind of bloodthirsty, power-hungry, angry God. You see, warnings are merciful. A good warning is meant to protect you. And so if you talk to people about the Bible who uh, maybe aren't believers or who are kind of questioning their faith, and they can say, man, that God in the Old Testament, just kind of an angry God. I don't really have a lot of interest in that God. He is kind of power hungry. He's, he's kind of saying all these really kind of, really kind of dire things, always threatening, very harsh. Um, not the kind of God I want. I want. I want New Testament God. I want to shed Old Testament God. But I think people who say that are simply failing to see that warnings are a means of grace. When God warns people, it's an aspect of his grace to tell them what will happen if they do not change course, if they do not turn around to him. And the hope behind every one of God's warnings is that it would keep people from destruction, not throw them into it. If you think about anywhere in your life, outside even the Bible, just your everyday life, anytime you are warned, it's supposed to help you. Okay, so let me give you one illustration. Um, a couple years ago, I went golfing 
in North Carolina for the first time. Now, when I golf, I tend to hit my ball in the woods. Looks so easy on TV, right? You just step up, grip it, rip it, lush green fairway. See, I'm never in that lush green fairway. I'm in the woods, okay? Um, My ball likes to start going that way and then veer to the right and end up in the trees. And so I am constantly looking around in the woods for my ball to see if I can hack it out and maybe find other balls that other people do not want to go look for in the woods, And I'm used to that in New Jersey. There's really no issues. There's no dangers associated with that, except maybe angry people behind me because I'm taking too long. But I get to North Carolina, first time golfing down there, I get to the first hole. And along the fairway, there's a big sign on the edge of the tree line. And if you golf a lot and you've golfed down south, you've probably seen it. Actually, I found a picture of it online. (sighs) Dangerous snakes. Dangerous snakes may be found in this area and will defend themselves if cornered or disturbed. They are important members of the natural community. Uh, Translation, do not look for your ball in the woods. And, And have I told you before, I am like terrified of snakes. And if you prank me with a snake, I will excommunicate you from this church. I don't know if I have that authority, but I'll make it happen. All right, it's going in the bylaws. Now, that's a warning. Would you say that warning is trying to be judgmental? Kind of harsh? Is that warning trying to keep me from living my best life? Is it trying to keep me from and and rob me of the joy of finding my ball and not needing to take (laughs) a penalty stroke? No, that sign is trying to save my life. It's hoping to change my course of action. That sign is a means of mercy to this naive, slicing New Jersey golfer. And that is the way we should view warnings in the Bible. A means of grace to change your course and save not just your life, but your soul. So the message isn't new to Jonah. He's done this before. But what's new is that this word is supposed to go to Nineveh. So let's talk about this city. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was among the most cruel and violent empires in the ancient world. They were known for their methods of torture, of mockery, of brutal forms of slavery. They didn't just want to conquer you, they wanted to humiliate you. And due to their proximity to Israel, they're just kind of to the northeast of that northern kingdom. The Assyrian Empire was the biggest threat to Israel's freedom. In fact, in the Bible, Bible's narrative, we know that a century earlier, the Assyrian king began taking tribute from Israel, which is like a tax to ensure that they could keep their freedom. You pay us and we won't destroy you. And so it was always a threat to come and take over God's people all throughout Jonah's lifetime. And we do know, as history would march forward, that after Jonah's time, in 722 B.C., this is exactly what will happen. And so we'll dig more into Nineveh in the coming weeks, but here's what I just want us to take note of this morning as we start. That even the capital of the brutal, pagan Assyrian Empire was not outside of God's missionary reach. That God wanted even Nineveh 
to hear the good news of the word of the Lord in hopes that they would respond and repent. You see, our God's grace is relentless. And no one falls outside the bounds of his desire to come to faith. So that's second. There's a clear command. Third, a rebellious response. Here is another place where the book of Jonah and the prophet of Jonah dramatically departs from the normal script of the other prophets. You see, Jonah says, no. Every other prophet, they will hear the word of the Lord, and they will go, and they will give the word. And then the results from there are mixed. But Jonah says, no. And here's where we find that the purpose of Jonah is not primarily, it's not just about the relentless grace in the message, although it's there. It's not primarily the relentless grace given to the recipient of the message, although it's there. But rather, the primary, primary purpose of Jonah is the relentless grace of God towards the messenger. And we see how Jonah just captures this in just those verses we read. Verse 1 said, Arise and go to Nineveh. Verse 3, Jonah rose and went to Joppa. So where is this in relation? So again, there's a slide up here. Um, uh, on the right side of your screen, Jonah lives right in between, right, uh, in Israel, in between Joppa and Nineveh. Nineveh is to the northeast. Joppa is to the southwest. Literally goes in the opposite direction with the intent of getting on a boat to go to Tarshish. There's Tarshish. Tarshish is talked about a couple times in the other prophets, primarily in Isaiah, and it's always just to kind of say the middle of nowhere. It's kind of how we say Siberia. It's just kind of the middle of nowhere. And Jonah rose to go to the middle of nowhere because he did not want to go to Nineveh. But here's where we really need to pay attention, okay? So if you've dazed out during all the background, you're thinking about lunch, I get it. Let me invite you back. Just dial in with me here. Jonah fled and disobeyed God in fear. But it's not the fear you might initially expect. Why is he fleeing? It's not because he's afraid of the actual action of giving God's word. Remember, he's a seasoned prophet. He's done this before. Not the new kid on the block. He's got a track record. He's spoken boldly to a wicked king within Israel. It shouldn't be an issue for him to have fear to go outside of Israel. Maybe he thinks, like maybe you would think, I just think Nineveh's going to kill me if I just go there. I don't want to go there. I'm just, I might not get back alive. It might be a pointless waste of time. Is that the reason? No. And we find out the reason in chapter 4. But I, it's worth kind of pulling that to the present now because it's worth seeing because I think it's going to shape our whole view of this book. You don't have to turn there unless you just want to look to the next page. Chapter 4, verse 2. Why did he flee? This is why. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Do you see it? Jonah is fleeing 
because he is afraid the people in Nineveh will respond. And he does not want God to show his grace on them. He hates the thought of it. Israel is God's people, not Assyria. They deserve to burn, man. Have you seen the things that they've done? They deserve your wrath, not your grace. All of a sudden, this is not just a kid's story about the whale anymore. This book is about a relentless God who shows relentless grace, both for those who receive and especially to those who were called to give the good news. But secondarily and importantly, this little book is loaded with all these sub-themes that become stunningly relevant and a little uncomfortable for us today. Themes like racism, prejudice, an unhealthy view of nationalism. When we get to Nineveh, we'll see the social injustice going on there, the hunger for power, and this kind of overarching, innate desire that we all have in this world to make it us versus them. We are us. We are here to defeat them. And it pervades all of our hearts all of our culture, and we see it every single day. Buckle your seatbelts for Jonah. And so here's just what I want to bring to our attention this morning. Here's where I want to start to just kind of lay this down on top of our lives. Jonah didn't see God's vision for this. So he assumed that because he can't see it, it must not be good. He couldn't see it based on his own experiences, his own feelings, his own stance on how he sees the world, how he feels in this world. It did not line up with what God was saying, and so he chose his way over God's word, and he's gone. You see, God's word says this, but I think that. And so I choose that over this. And it's right there at that point where we can often locate ourselves in the story of Jonah. One thing we'll see over and over again is how this book uses repetition and how it's written. You know, a good tool of interpretation when you're reading the Bible, how am I supposed to understand what's being said, is to notice what's getting repeated. An author repeats what they want to emphasize. In just these first couple of verses, did you notice repetition? Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. So he paid the fare to go with them away from the presence of the Lord. We know that Jonah knew more than most, you can't actually get away from the presence of the Lord. There's no place in this world, even Tarshish, where God is not present, where God is not sovereignly reigning over. And so Jonah knows that. He's experienced. He's a rooted believer But in the Old Testament, fleeing the presence of the Lord is kind of this Hebrew idiom that translates to full rebellion against God's word. You know, we can never get away from him, but we can rebel against him in disobedience. We can say, I know this is what God's word says, but I doubt it's actually good for me. And so I'm going to choose my way over his way. 
And when we do that, and we live life in that realm, we run like Jonah. Now, the underlying reasons why are all over the place. Maybe it's not racism. Maybe it's not an unhealthy version of nationalist pride. But it's a mentality that doubts God's word is good for you, is best for you. God says zig, you say zag. And so the question before us is pretty plain this morning. Is anyone running from the Lord? Meaning, is anyone walking in active disobedience to God's word upon your life? Right? God's call to pursue, call in our life is to pursue holiness, to be like Christ. And while it's possible that God is calling you to something specific and pressing upon your soul and you're struggling with it, I think that's possible. But I think we all can say, no matter where we are, that the word of the Lord has come upon us because we have our Bible. This is how God speaks to us today. We don't have to wait for a small inner voice. Was that my conscience? Was that me? I don't know. Was that something else? We have the word. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these days he has spoken to us by his Son. John 1 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the question of, are you running from the Lord this morning, is the same as asking, are you refusing to trust in and walk in faithful obedience to His Word? Are you running from Him? You know, perhaps we should take longer to think about that than we might initially want to and allow the Spirit to just search our hearts in that. Again, it could be something very recent, something you came across in his word or something the spirit impressed upon you from his word where your natural, natural inclination is, I don't like that, I can't do that. But more likely for many of us, myself included, considering Jonah was a longtime believer, it's possible that there's an area of your life where you've been running for a long time now. And far more likely that you have found a way to justify this to yourself a long time ago, that you don't need to do this one thing. Maybe there's that one relationship you don't need to reconcile. There's that one apology you don't need to give. There's that one sinful entrapment of the flesh that you decided, this is okay. Maybe it's a form of sexual sin. Maybe it's a lack of compassion for the least of these around us. Or maybe, like Jonah, it is a sin of prideful racism where you are harboring hatred for those who don't look like you. And you don't talk about it. It's personal and it's private and so it's rampant. You know, an often overlooked mistake Jonah makes is that he doesn't seem to consult anybody about this. Do you notice that? He just goes. He doesn't seek counsel. He doesn't surround himself with people who could speak into this, who could kind of see the perspective and just kind of try and point out the warped worldview he's in. Because when we're just alone, it makes sin way more justifiable. It makes disobedience way easier. If he just had to tell himself he's right and God's wrong, 
you can justify anything to yourself. Like, listen, Jonah probably got down to the docks, and he said, oh, look, how convenient. There's a ship going to Tarshish, and there's one spot left. Looks like I was right. This is a sign, knew it all along. One of the many reasons we emphasize the need for believers to be part of a local church, not just attending, but to formally align yourself with the church by becoming a member, is that it is God's means of grace in keeping us from isolating ourselves without any support, where we can keep everyone at arm's length. We are very good at that. And one of the fallouts of that is that just that we are able to justify disobedience easier. We never need to be accountable under the care of elders or shepherds and overseers in the church. So I want to be careful. I'm not saying that not being a member means you're in disobedience, but I want us to just be very careful. Because at best, you're just leaving yourself way more vulnerable to drift away. One of our elders, Andy Steen, wrote a blog this past week uh, on our website. If you have not read it, you should go back and read it. It's a short little post outlining the importance of taking vows with the church, of, quote-unquote, making it official. And so go read it. It's for your good. It's for God's glory. It's for the good of a cumulative impact of Grace Church to pursue membership. May 19th is our next membership class. I encourage you to at least just go. It doesn't bind you anything. Just go and hear about what we're talking about. May 19th after the service. But Jonah consulted no one. And it made it easier to disobey. And again, just noticing Jonah, the way he's writing it, the languages, the repetition. Do you notice more repetition? He went down to Joppa where he found a ship. And he paid it. And then he went down into the ship. And next week we'll see. He'll continue down into the bottom of a ship. And then he'll continue down into the depths of the water. And it tells us that the path of rebellion against God's word never takes you to the heights of victory. It will always lead you to the depths of despair. Lastly, quickly, we see relentless grace. Jonah said no. And Jonah is on the run. But praise God, this book does not end after verse 3. You see, our God is a relentless God who will not allow his people to run without the pursuit of his relentless grace. Just as an effective coach will not allow one of her players to drift away unchecked, just as an effective teacher will not allow one of his students to fail without being pursued, our God will not allow us to remain comfortable on the path of disobedience. And by his grace, he pursues us. And the climactic evidence of God's pursuit is when he sent his one and only son into the world, Jesus Christ, to bring the word of the Lord. And Jesus said, yes. Knowing the cost it would take, he obeyed. And he came and he lived the life we could not live so that he could take the blessed place on the cross and die the death that we deserve. And Jesus came not just to bring the good news, but as the word made flesh to be the good news. And his victory over the cross and the empty grave does not free us from having to obey. Jesus did it. I don't need to do it. That's not what he came to do. He came to free you to obedience to God's word. That we are transformed from the inside out through faith in Jesus Christ, given new hearts, so that now we do have the ability imperfectly, yes, but growing in our ability to walk in the ways of the Lord by his Spirit within us. 
And so as we close, there's one of two things maybe we all need to consider this morning. Number one, if you're not a believer, meaning maybe you acknowledge God is real, you've acknowledged maybe for a long time Jesus is real and he did some good things, but if you have not surrendered your life to Christ and not love him with your whole heart, we invite you to make that decision today. To confess your sin, place your faith in Jesus as your Savior. And we invite that. We always want to invite that, not um, uh, because we're just trying to harbor something over you, but because we have a hope in this world and his name is Jesus. And we want you to have that same hope of salvation. And second, for those who by God's grace have made that decision and are believers, God is calling every one of us to obedience to faithfully pursue holiness for God's glory, which includes confessing those areas where maybe you currently are running away from him. Even if you've been a believer a long time, that is possible to run from him. And we invite you to turn back toward him, for he will be faithful to forgive you, to restore you, to strengthen you. You see, it's never too late to start obeying God's word once again. And in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity after we sing to take communion together. And we have this time carved out to search your heart, to confess, to be restored. And I hope you will take advantage of that time. Jonah is going to be something. And we begin by affirming and reaffirming as a church that God's word is the best word. And we know it is for our good no matter the cost. Let's pray.